Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I'm Ben Duncan, and on this podcast, I will be interviewing prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana. In today's episode, I'm joined by Shane Williams. Shane is a technology leadership expert and works with a range of digital organizations to advise and guide them on how they can build capacity and capability that unlocks the intrinsic value in enterprise software. Part of Shane's work also includes helping companies with attracting and retaining talent. So I asked him to come back on the show to discuss what he is seeing and hearing from his customers with regards to increasing salaries, expectations from hiring managers now that they're having to pay more, and how he sees the market playing out when borders open and more experienced talent becomes available. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you do, please do subscribe for future episodes that are coming through. Shane, welcome back. Welcome back. Good to have you again. Mate, thanks for having me. I reckon this is, what, round three? I reckon so. Always a pleasure. And I can see your book in the background. I know what you've been up to, but listeners might not. So what have you been up to since we uh, we last caught up? Well, yeah, so I do have a book. That's right. Uh, what have I been doing? So how long has it been since we caught up? Probably 12 or 18 months or so. So I started my own business. I've I'm published. Well, actually, I was just kicking off the business when we spoke last, I think. Yeah. So yeah, published a book, now hosting a podcast that has 20 odd episodes. I've kind of found my niche in terms of the types of customers I'm working with in the market now. So business is going well. I'm really enjoying sort of, you know, being that trusted advisor and working for myself. But uh, yeah, that's no, been fun, man. And always a good chance to chat with you. So here I am. Nice. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what I wanted to focus on today, that kind of advisory piece that you do, because you're, you're in a unique position that you're not, you know, you're not a hiring manager within one company. You're not kind of siloed into what you're seeing within one industry. You're, you're kind of across multiple clients, advising and guiding multiple different customers on I guess, how to get ROI from a platform and, and quite often Salesforce. So you have discussions right from the, the beginning of, of a customer's journey from even before they've decided to go with Salesforce in some cases, or when they're looking to, to squeeze more value out of the platform. And, and a lot of the time that conversation will include talent and people. 100%. In fact, um, it always includes talent and people. Yeah, absolutely. So, so obviously in my realm, I'm dealing with talent and people day to day and, and we're, we're seeing you know, a, a lot of trends around salaries going up and people expecting and looking for, to squeeze more value out of their time and expertise, I guess, and, and be paid more as the, the market conditions enable that, I guess, in terms of the shortages we're seeing and, and we'll continue to see until the borders are properly open with people coming in day to day. So what I, I wanted to focus on initially, and one thing that, that I think a lot of people probably don't understand if they're a job seeker is the budget that a customer sets when they're hiring. So, you know, you might speak to a hiring manager and they say, right, my budget for this role is 100K plus super. And then you go and speak to the, the candidate pool and, and they might have different expectations and, you know, they might sometimes try and push that budget up. And But how, how does a company actually come to understand what they need to pay for a role and what's the process of getting, you know, the, the budget approved and then how flexible is that budget as time goes by? Straight into the curly ones, budgets. All right, so... Let me think. I think the answer to your question is there's no one way and it's probably got a few different, I guess, tangents or variables, right? So the first would be if you think about where are you on your journey, right? So if it's a whole new, we're just thinking about putting in a platform, we're going through the budget cycle and we're trying to work out how much is it going to cost in terms of software, what's implementation going to be, what type of team do we need? That's a very different conversation in terms of 
budgeting versus we're already a mature practice, we've already got people in roles and whatnot. So I think a nuance to the question is it depends and it depends on Mm -hmm. a couple of things like maturity. I think where I see businesses tend to start, particularly ones that are big enough that have their own talent acquisition team or their own HR group, is they'll look to industry benchmark tools, right? And what's really fascinating about the platform space is a lot of the benchmarks that you get access to, it'll have common roles, project manager, business analyst, software developer. Some of them have nuances of like Java developer and and senior and junior levels within and then state and territory variances. But they're starting to get there, but historically haven't had product specific nuance, right? So typically you'll start there. You'll see the talent team go, oh, well, what type of role is it? Oh, it's a developer. Oh, well, a developer's worth this much. Mm-hmm. And then you've got that, as you say, right? The candidates go, well, actually, I'm in the sales force market and I know my worth and I know what's higher. And there's this kind of argy-bargy between the two. The businesses that are a little bit more sophisticated, so they've not only got a talent team, but then they've got, I guess, some structure around how they do pay and salaries. We'll take it to the next level. So they'll actually look at, within our business, we have levels of roles. And you know, it might start, if you think about a typical, let's call it a tech business with a you know, software engineering teams, they might start with like, junior or associate business analysts and they'll go up through that stream. You'll have junior developers and you'll go right up to engineering managers and they'll have certain levels. They'll then overlay, well, what does that look like in a NetSuite world, Salesforce world, SAP world, whatever? And they'll try and say, you know, if a mid-level developer is this, that's equivalent to, let's call it a functional consultant. And they'll try and line those up. Mm -hmm. And I go, okay, well, if we now know a functional consultant is the same as a mid-level developer, then our budget is X. Then you'll have another level of sophistication where they'll talk about, right, but now we know that there are market nuances. So whilst these level of role might be level role one, two, three, four, five, six, they then say, right, but if it's in the, you know, a classic one is data and analytics space, right? Like the people who are really heavily into the data space or cybersecurity, then there's kind of what they call a multiplier. So they'll look at that and go, well, it's a, it's a level three role, but because it's a really specific specialization, there's a multiplier applied. And Salesforce typically falls into that category. I've seen anywhere up to 30% variance on role based on the Salesforce specialization. But again, that doesn't apply to every role of the Salesforce tag, right? So you can't be a, necessarily be a Salesforce BA and get a 30% multiplier, whereas a senior Salesforce developer might because, you know, the BA skills are largely transferable, but the Salesforce developer skills might not be. Sure. Uh, so that's kind of where some of those variances come in there. And then you get nuances of just like being a manager, right? I've got 10 roles in my team. I know I need a senior role over here. I don't have enough money in the budget line to pay for that one. But if I forego this role, I have more money to pay and I can pay an increase. So there's no single answer to your question, but hopefully that gives some insight into some of the things that happen in organizations to try and plan stuff out. Yeah, I think you're right in terms of sophistication of the organization and the maturity of, you know, have they done this before? Have they been doing it for years? And I guess if they're a decent sized organization, they've been through trends before of of candidate shortages in different areas. So they understand that there are those markups. But I always get this question from, from clients. They come to me and they say, what's the market rate for a Salesforce developer with five years experience? And I'm like, I hate the term market rate. I hate the concept that you can put people in a bucket based on how many years of experience they have. And there are so many variables, like, you know, someone with better communication skills, if they're in front of a stakeholder, can demand a higher salary than someone that doesn't have that communication skills, if presentation and communication is a big aspect of the role. And you can't see that from from how many years of experience someone has. 
so it is difficult to, to to pigeonhole. So when you were creating a budget for your own, would you always try and bake a little bit more on top, even above the thirty percent, so that potentially so that you had room for maneuvering if if a really strong candidate came up? Typically, no. I wouldn't deliberately go and try and inflate the salary, right? I guess one of my values is integrity and transparency, right? So just for me, I wouldn't do it. But what mm-hmm. I would do is have a genuine conversation that says. If we know that this level of role is worth X and we know there's a Salesforce multiplier of Y, then it actually gives you a band, right? So for that role, even with the multiplier, someone entering the band and someone leaving the band, again, it's a band for a reason, right? It's not a a number. And so within the band, you're then talking to the candidates and thinking, right, well, where do I think you fit within this band? So to your earlier point, I'd be thinking, what are the traits that I'm looking for and what would demand a salary within that? And it's not just, do you have five years experience? It's probably, do you have five years experience in our industry or in a similar industry or something that's transferable, that's more material than just Salesforce developer and then nuances of what types of code you can write and and so forth. It's probably, you know, if you're in banking, do you have finance industry experience? If you're in, you know, automotive, then, you know, what, what applies there? So there's an element of that. But I think there's also an element of, you talked about communication skills. I think it's about, yeah cultural fit I think it's about attitude you know I'd rather hire somebody who's got the aptitude and attitude to bring their whole self to the table and develop within the organization than I would buying already having done that like I feel like going on the journey with me and my team and and our organization and us doing that learning together is probably more valuable than just buying that skill set in in terms of experience so I, I think there's a bit of balance in there. Yeah, 100%. So the, the market is inflated right now in terms of where it was two years ago to now. And, and you know, it's going up and up and up and up and, and it, there's kind of no end in sight. But are you seeing that your customers, your contacts across the industry are just rolling with the punches and are going with it because they have to? Or are people now expecting more value from the people they're hiring because they're paying more? Yeah. So we had my holder roundtable every couple of months and the most recent one was a couple of weeks ago and it was about the great resignation and specifically like what are you doing to attract and retain talent and so there was a lot of discussion around particularly around what's going on with salaries the amount of movement in the market and so forth and it's interesting I was reading an article a couple of days ago that said that the great resignation is a myth particularly in Australia and actually the amount of people moving around is less than it has been but in the market I operate in that sort of tech you know startup to scale up transition phase there's a massive amount of movement in the Australian market at the moment and so you're right salaries are going up part of that is the inability to get people on shore part of it and I think the majority of it is just the fact that a lot of organizations have realized very recently that they have to digitally transform and fast in order to mm-hmm. work in the new normal so there's a ton of new project work come up all of a sudden right that would typically have kind of transformation project might take five years and they'll incrementally do it. And all of a sudden there's all these organizations that go, we have to do it now. We have to pivot. And so there's a shortage of people because there's so much project work going on. So, you know, because we're paying more, can we expect more? I think the answer is yes and no. Partly it's the market is what it is. And if we don't pay, we won't be able to attract talent. And if we don't pay market, we won't be able to retain talent. So as salaries are going up, there's a lot of conversation around, yeah, what does that mean? How do we budget for it? How do we keep on top of it just to make sure we don't lose people, but also that we can compete? And that's kind of then you can't immediately go, well, now I'm paying 20% more. Therefore, I'm expecting 20% more because the market is what it is, right? So there's that. But there's also 
I think what you're going to find is within a band, you know, people are going to start coming into the organisation and some organisations are going to go, well, I've got this much band to play with. The salary expectations have moved up. So I'm going to pay at the beginning of this person joining the organisation at the top of the band because I can fit it within my budget because I don't have to ask for more money and it doesn't necessarily impact my bottom line. But now I'm really going to struggle because I have to, I, like the gap in my, there's an expectation within the organisation and the peers of that person's role that they can perform at the top of the band that they're operating in. That could become a challenge for people who've jumped roles because they're looking for a big kick in salary but aren't necessarily ready to play. So, you know, it's kind of one of those, you know, if you want to put the boxing gloves on and punch above your weight, just expect to get hurt. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's an interesting way of looking at it. But I, I don't always feel that, and I get this, I get why why people would want to make hay while the sun shines and people will probably laugh that I'm saying this as a recruiter because we get kind of uh, seen in a certain way. But I, I just feel that sometimes people potentially are setting themselves up for failure because they are chasing that monetary value and, and ju- jumping so far ahead. Like, I mean, I, this year I, I saw someone go from 135 package to 200k base in and and they were like literally they weren't jumping like several layers of job but they were taking a a real stretch from where they were at now were they being underpaid in their previous role probably were they being overpaid in their new role probably but the value proposition for each of those hiring companies right there wasn't that amount of difference in you know the the skill set someone was bringing so surely the company that are paying 200k have to expect more from the person that the company that then are paying 135 because if you're doing the same job for the same amount of hours in a day there has to be more output for that company to receive that value surely so i think in an organization where i was talking about before where you're playing within a band and whatnot i think there's probably a little bit of leeway in that one right when you're talking about the scenarios where you've got the organizations that are paying significantly over market I don't know if you've, you know, I can't even think of the name of the book and I wish it's escaping me at the moment, but it's written about how Netflix operates and how they recruit. Yeah. And I'm seeing a few tech organizations look at that as a possible way to attract talent, which is we are going to pay at a rate that no one's going to be able to compete with. We're going to pay the top of the market, but for that, we're going to expect the best of the best. And then it becomes a really rigorous process of high expectation, right? So to your point, if I'm paying up here, I'm going to expect up here. I don't think many companies in Australia specifically are trying to compete there yet, but there are a few who are trying it out. I think they will attract talent, but if you're not at the top of your game and you're not an expert, you could struggle. Yeah, and I guess that's where the kind of probation period comes in, right? It's all right if you take that much of a stretch and you're positioning yourself as an absolute A-star talent, then the the fall can be quite significant if you don't reach that that level. Yeah, so this is another thing that we talked about at the roundtable the other day, which is the recruitment process, right? So because the market's so hot, what we're seeing is you know, some of the organisations that I work with are seen, particularly in Melbourne, but in Australia, as the place to work. Like if you're in a particular, if you're a software developer or you're whatever, there's half a dozen companies in Australia where you, know, like you genuinely want to get in the door and traditionally the bar's pretty high and it's kind of a, you know, they'll come to us. We don't have to necessarily put our brand out there. And so talking to them recently, and it was a case of what we're seeing now is the market's so hot that they've become a seller's market. And so they've had to adapt their recruitment process, what traditionally would have been very high on sort of the due diligence space, right? We've got a technical interview. We've got a cultural interview. We've got probably a code test. 
and you might do two or three interviews and a code test and then a pairing conversation and then you might get an offer. What we're seeing now is the market is such that if we go through that, our regular process, candidates will just jump to the next available offer because they don't want to have to, they're not going to, you know, forego one for another. And so the conversation we had the other day is what some of these organizations are doing, they traditionally wouldn't have even, 99 times out of 100, the probation period was just a rubber stamp, right? Because the likelihood that that person's not going to fit in and not going to deliver, given the amount of DD that's been done, probably pretty slim. Now what you're seeing is they're relying on that process, and you talked about it, right? is if I can't do all my due diligence up front, then I'm going to use probation period for what it was originally designed for, which is if I make a bad decision, I can get out of it. And so, you know, I think there's only a certain amount of time you can bluff. So if you've got a six-month probation period, can you keep up the bluff for six months? Probably unlikely. And I reckon Mm -hmm. there will be some people who make the mistake of, you know, I can interview really well. And because it's only a short, sharp interview and the market's moving really quickly, I might get in the door, but if I can't back it up, then, you know, different position to be I'm in a role and I'm being offered a role I'm going to jump to I've just been walked and now what do I do so yeah it's an interesting one it was a lot of conversation around you know we feel really bad about making that our process we don't think it's good for our brand to hire people who don't fit but by the same token the market's kind of pushing us to do that and what's the right balance yeah and like I I feel that like the the volume of opportunity yes it creates like that probation period is a safety net for companies but also for candidates right it can be used on both sides if someone feels that they're not enjoying the role they can also leave but I feel the one area that is interesting to me at the moment is the contracting space because there's so many contract opportunities in the market for especially for Salesforce developers that people know that if they don't perform or you know they get let go or they're not adhering to the standards that are expected of them as a contractor then they can just get another contract and it's just crazy like you can just roll from one contract to another pick up the same rate sometimes even get an increase because you know you've just moved role and and no one really knows why you left the last role you can just say you've you delivered what you needed to deliver put your rate up slightly you get another role and you can just keep rolling those contracts because there's always another one coming through yeah look to be honest i haven't been in a scenario of recruiting a software developer contractor and had a bad one yet but i can see why or how it's possible that's where you'd probably be asking the question like why are your contracts so short and likely doing for independent contractors you know doing references now people aren't going to give you the references of people who are going to give them a bad reference but i think the australian market particularly in my space in that sort of tech space is small enough that I'm not necessarily going to talk to the person who you give me the name of. I'll know via LinkedIn or via the company that you came from, somebody there who can give me an honest opinion. So I can see why people could get away with it and bounce around, but you get tripped up sooner or later, would have thought. Yeah, I I heard a story this week of a contractor that had been in a company for, let's say, I think it was something like five or six weeks and had delivered nothing, nothing in that period of time and kept asking if there was any old code that they could refactor. And if I, I just couldn't imagine myself turning up to a job every day that I wasn't able to do unless, you know, I would, I would much rather go and learn from someone and, and take a, a much lower paying job under someone that can guide me and show me the ropes and get me to that level and then go into the contract market to know that, you know, I'm absolutely comfortable and able to deliver and, and I'm going to add significant value and pick up the, the money that I, I'm deserving of. But to go into a role that you're not capable of doing as a contractor where, I mean, when you've hired in the past and you've hired a contractor, have you hired them to hit the ground running and deliver from day one because they're a contractor? Yeah, 100%. So, I mean, granted, the last time I hired a contract developer was, you know, pre the great resignation. And we had the luxury of going through doing code testing and making sure that they were 
going to hit the ground running. But assuming that they are, then you're absolutely going, I'm hiring an expert. And my assumption is that you're going to hit the ground running and you're a hired gun and that's there's a reason that you're in there. You're enjoying the high day rate on the kind of the flip side of that equation is I pay higher, but there's you know less, I guess, longevity in the role or you know for a fact that you, you want to do the type of work where you go in, solve a problem, get involved and bounce out and go on to the next thing. And so, yeah, it's an it's a unwritten understanding that the reason you're commanding that level of you know dollars is because you're bringing that level of value. And I think it just comes down to a value equation. But mm-hmm. as I say, if you're walking in there because the market's paying high and expecting that you can just you know, hang out on Stack Overflow every day and copy somebody else's code off GitHub, you're going to get sprung, right? Well, you would hope so, but not, I, I'm sure there are lots of examples of people that are yet to be sprung. And the, the thing that fascinates me as well, like, and, and I, I just want to um, say that I would be a contractor if I was a Salesforce developer. I absolutely would because I, I would stick around in a company long enough to make sure that I was very, very competent at my job and I would have a niche and I would go after those contract roles and I would add value. But I would be a contractor because I don't see why in this market you wouldn't want to be unless you have a, a particular goal or you need that stability of a permanent role, like or, or you really want to work under a particular mentor. There's just so much opportunity out there that, that now is the time to be a contractor. But I do think that you have to accept that as a contractor, there's certain terms that you are, you're not going to get certain benefits of a permanent role. And there is going to be less stability. So it, it amazes me when I'll speak to a candidate and they're like, I really want to be a contractor, but it has to be a 12-month contract. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, in the book, I talk about what I call the stayers and the players. There are some people who just want to stay in an organization and they don't, you know, the players being, I'm just happy to take the next big project and bounce and bounce and bounce, right? And I think that's what you're yeah. talking about. It's not just about my skill set and what the market is paying, but it's also my preference, right? I might like to join an organization and be on the journey for multiple years or my career, although I'm a Salesforce developer, I might actually genuinely want to be in an organization where I get to flex into AWS development and I get to flex into other things in and around the ecosystem that is in this case, Salesforce. So just being a Salesforce gun, I'm probably coming in and I'm only writing Salesforce code to solve a particular problem. And I think it's also for courses, you know, if you're looking for some stability, you're looking for some longevity and you're looking for some, you know, I guess breadth in the work, then maybe contracting isn't for you. But I can see why if you're just chasing, you know, I want to be really specific niche and I want to do short, sharp engagements and really test myself and I want to ride the wave of the dollars, then you would absolutely go for contract. Yeah. And it's, it's like, well, if you're, if you're looking for a 12 month contract, like what's, why wouldn't that company try and hire a permit? You know, like you, you're looking for the stability of a permanent role, give or take. Yeah, like, you know, a lot of people don't stay in a permanent role for much longer than 12 months anyway these days. So yeah, it's kind of, you just can't have the best of both worlds. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'll see some organizations that are happy to do a 12-month contract, but it's because they know they need, they've got about 12 months worth of work that needs to be delivered, but they don't want to commit to a longer term beyond that 12 months in terms of a hire, right? Now you could run... As an organization, you could run the gauntlet and go, I'm going to recruit a full-timer and try and get the benefit of not paying the higher day rate on the assumption that the person will bounce after 12 months. But what if they don't? And so I think organizations will be happy to do a 12-month contract just for the sake of securing someone for 12 months. But having said that, I'm seeing less of it. I'm seeing a lot of organizations go, you know what, we need people for a shorter period because we've got a, you know, three-month project and we just want someone really experienced to come in help us smash this project out and get out but i guess it depends on again 
whereabouts are they on their journey in terms of maturity? What is the forward roadmap of work look like? There's going to be a bunch of nuances to that. Yeah, and there's this real clash at the moment around contractors and partners with staff augmentation. I think, you know, they're historically, I think a lot of contract resource came from partners that were just purely doing staff org. And I think now a lot of companies have realized they can get some cases cheaper rates by going direct to market and cutting out the partner. So so yeah, I think historically those contractors, if you're hiring a contractor from a partner, you can pick someone up for, for you know, a month or, or three months because they're already employed, they're rolling off of another project onto something. But it's really hard to attract a contractor directly if they are an independent for three months, because they do typically want more. But yeah, I could probably name in the last six years on, on one hand, how many times I've actually secured a 12 month contract for a, a candidate, they tend to be six months on, on average, I would say, that would be the sweet spot. But a lot of government departments do hire a longer term, That that's kind of where I see that. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot of government clients. The ones I have spoken to, as far as I can tell, there doesn't appear to be any long-term full-time engagements, right? They're all fixed-term contracts. Yeah, well, so I guess it's not just Salesforce where prices are going up and and costs are going up, but have you had discussions with any clients that are saying, well, you know, we can't find resources or we can't afford resources, therefore we're we're starting to look at other platforms, other technology, other solutions? So up until recently, I would have said I've never seen it. Typically, it would be, well, again, depends on your life cycle, right? If it's early days where you're scoping out, what are we trying to achieve? And then you're looking at the tech to support it. Then I have seen, you're looking at the total cost of ownership and you very much go, right, well, if you're doing it properly, yes, here's the cost of software, here's the cost of the people to maintain and build that uh, and implementation costs and you're working it out. And I have seen people go, you know what, we'll take this platform over this one because the ROI in the longer term is going to be a, a better fit. But once you're kind of in, then typically I don't see people bounce out, right? It's like, yes, I know the salaries are going up, but the cost to replatform again onto something else just because the market's moving, you know, like that's that'd be a big call, particularly when you think about the business change you need to go through and, and, the, and the level of investment you've already put in, you would have to depreciate and stuff. So I haven't seen that necessarily happen, except recently, and I'm saying can't name the clients, right? But I did see a business that, had invested in a platform and had signed on for three years worth of licensing. We're talking about, you know, multiple products from this vendor and was about 12 months into the implementation project. So you're talking about, you know, a significant team, a significant amount of already investment in humans as well as software. And then this business acquired another business that had obviously to expand their brand. And as part of the due diligence around the M&A and bringing those two businesses together, they looked at it and went, well, hang on, we're only one year into a three-year journey to build out this platform. And yet we're buying a business that already has something that's established. And there was the immediate, well, you know, this platform is only going to scale this far. This one's got, you know, a lot more, you know, breadth in it. It's more enterprise and what have you. But looking over here, there's only less than half a dozen humans running this platform that does a lot of things. And the continued investment down this path and then migrating that business over is going to be several times more expensive. And so even though there was a committed cost of a million bucks a year in licensing and having to either find new roles for people and and let a partner go, they still chose to jump onto the other platform purely because when you factor in the cost of, I guess, continuous improvement and development and the cost of humans to deliver on that platform, it was chalk and cheese in terms of three-year investment. So they made the call. So typically I would have said, once you're on the platform, you're in, but not necessarily always. 
What about then people that aren't on the platform? Like, are, are people savvy now to the the challenges in the Salesforce market? So, if you've got a customer that's looking at a few different platforms, and you know, are, are they saying we've heard it's really hard to find good people, and the the salaries are really high in Salesforce? We have to bear that in mind as we go through this kind of due diligence process. Yeah, look, I mean, typically, so you've mentioned Salesforce is your brand, right? So let's talk about that. Typically, the conversations would begin with Salesforce is super expensive, right? And that's not necessarily true. It just happens to be the perception that yeah, the, yeah. The organizations will go in with, right? And then you sit down and talk about, well, tell me why you think it's expensive. And they're like, oh, well, I need this, 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 and this. And you might go, actually, you know what? You're biting off more than you can chew. You don't need all those things. You need to start here. In the longer yeah. term, you might need those. And so you need to factor those in. But now, as you say, the conversation is also then, and this is where I, my thought leadership comes in, is your cost to own, run and maintain and get value out of these things is not just a piece of software. It's all the stuff that goes around it, which includes the teams of people that do the things and the governance and whatnot, right? So let's factor in the total cost of ownership of that, which includes the people. And I think as the salaries go up, we're going to see that value equation being a little bit more difficult when you're comparing product. But having said that, I think all salaries are going up in the tech space, right? So it's not just the Salesforce world. It's going to be AWS developers and it's going to be, you know, all sorts of stuff. So whilst it might say, well, Salesforce salaries are skyrocketing, therefore that cost of ownership is, you know, slightly larger than it might have been two years ago. I don't think necessarily, oh, let's go and custom build something because, well, A, you've got to build it. B, you know, those salaries are also increasing at, you know, I guess, a you know, similar level. So... Yeah, I don't know that necessarily it would prohibit you, but it would certainly increase the cost of you know getting on the on the game. And what what about like the balance of insourcing and outsourcing work, and you know using partners? Because I'm imagining, I mean, I, I don't know, I don't use partners obviously for myself, but I'm imagining they've put their prices up as well because they're having to pay more for staff. You would you would expect that that would be a, a one way around that. But do you see more companies, you know, now looking to kind of completely outsource their work because? the cost of having a permanent employee to, to look after it is, you know, a, a fixed cost for a long period of time? Or do you see people that actually go, you know what, rather than paying for partners and, and having that kind of, you know, up and down cost of when we need a managed service, it's going to be better for us to build internal capability? Again, it probably depends on the level of maturity of the investment. So yeah. typically, I would say, you're getting on board, this is your first big bang, you've, you've, you've put some budget forward for an investment. You start out, you don't have a team. And so you would typically see either partner comes in to deliver the first big implementation and then you build an internal team or you're kind of building them in parallel so that you've got this blend. Certainly my preference would be to have your own team working with the partner so you kind of learn this thing as you're building it. But some organizations will, you know, I want, I, I've been sold this thing. I want it in, in, the, in six months and we've budgeted for a partner to come in and deliver it. So that's what they're going to do. And we'll kind of kick the can down the road of what it costs to run. So typically you'll have a higher partner investment cost in the early days implementation, notwithstanding you might do a PAC with a couple of internal people, but you know, typically that's what it looks like. Then as you kind of get into, I've got four layers of maturity, right? But once you kind of get into the, the midpoint when you're in run and maintain, then I see a higher level of internal and direct contractor capability and less partner. Certainly partner four, we want to do bigger pieces of investment, but it's kind of, you know, cyclical. And then if you're, uh, all right, now the platform's mature, we don't need a significant amount of investment, or we're actually going to ramp down investment in that because it's kind of doing what we need to do and we don't want to keep investing, then you may choose to go actually as the team starts to, you know, a fixed cost go down, let's just off, you know, bring a partner in and use an offshore model to try and you know, maintain the platform without necessarily wanting to 
continue to put internal resources in. So I think it's kind of you know, the whole answer to your question is it depends on level of maturity in the organization and the level of investment they want to make in that. Yeah, I think uh, like from my six or so years and seven years now, I think in the ecosystem, I've definitely seen a massive increase in, in companies building internal capability compared to way back when it was like it, all the projects were going to partners. And, and and I think that's like you said, it's having that mix and that blend is probably the right way to go for, for most people if if you can lean on expertise for particular things and at particular times. But it's important to have some of the IP internally and, and you know, know what to do with the platform if, if the lights go out. Yeah, I think look, when you're putting the platform in, typically, if you had the luxury of there's no time limit on when we're going to get to this capability, right? It's kind of a, I don't know, VC you know, startup or, or a, you know, a spinoff of a bank that's got plenty of money, then you might build your own internal capability and ramp the size of the team and the skills that you need as you're building the platform. But typically, it'll be, if I think I'm paying for something, stakeholder says, well, when am I getting it, right? There's this whole, uh, the sooner the better. And so you can't spin up a team overnight, right? So I think that's where the partner comes in because they can springboard a team in on a schedule. And then, you know, to your point, and this is where, you know, I try to advise clients is build your team whilst you're building the platform so that when you get to the point that you're live, you've got a full understanding of how it works. You've been involved in the, in the technical decisions and you can then build and maintain the platform moving forward. Because if you wait to the end and it gets handed over and then there's you know, the typical, oh, this thing's full of tech debt, oh, all these bad decisions were made and people love throwing hindsight around, right? The, the reality is you weren't there in the thick of it and didn't understand the constraints and whatnot that were applied to the project team at the time. So throwing rocks at them is no good. But if you're part of that journey and you understand those decisions that were made, you can influence them and go, you know what? I've got to own this stuff in two years time. So no, we're not making that bad technical call. Or yeah. I know why that decision was made and at the time it was the right decision and now we need to change it, but it's pointless throwing rocks at people who aren't around anymore. Sure, sure. So just to finish, I've got two kind of forward-looking questions for you. I'm going to ask you to make some predictions. When the board is open... Because I'm just conscious that there's something that's been burning away in the back of my head. Hit me. Ask, right? And that is, we talked a lot about, you know, what do businesses think in terms of the rates going up and whatnot, right? But you talk, I imagine, to a lot of candidates. And I'm tipping, based on some of the things you said, that there's some unrealistic expectations going on in candidate world. But may, And maybe I'm being provocative here and you'd probably rather not say it, but I thought I'd just throw it out to you, right? So do you reckon the candidates that are trying to, like, you know, ride the wave, do you reckon they're being realistic? I think, like, eventually you'll find the salary that you're looking for if you look for long enough and... And, and look at everything, right? So, so there, there's a couple of examples I've, I've had recently. And, and a, a guy said to me, uh, he, he basically listed 10 companies that he'd spoken to. And he told me the salary he was looking for. And he basically gave an explanation for each of those companies as to why they hadn't moved forward. And rather than, than using those 10 companies and saying, maybe I'm looking for too much money, he was just looking for company number 11. It wasn't that, you know, I'm going to learn from the, the last 10 interviews I've had and, and work on the things that, that maybe I'm struggling with or, or the, the gaps that I have that would enable me to get to the salary I'm looking for. All it was about was finding company 11 that was next on the list that potentially would pay that amount of money. And I think if, you know, if that, that person got to 12, 13, 14, 15, he'd either find the company or he'd stay where, where he is. Like eventually you will find the salary that you're looking for if you look for long enough. But yeah, I, I, for me, I think a lot of people have really 
outlandish expectations. And I think a lot of the trend in the market at the moment is that you have to have a pay rise every time you move job. And like another example recently, a candidate got in touch with me and said that I'm looking to leave because in my current role, where they'd been like for five or six months in a permanent role, I'm working too many hours. So I think they were working like 10 hours a day or something like that. So I said, okay, great. I've got this role for you. Here it is. The salary is, I'll, I'll say it was 150, something like that, the salary. And their response was, well, I'm already earning 140. So it has to be 160 for me to leave. So I was like, well, I thought your problem was that you were working too many hours. I didn't realize it was the salary. So basically this person was looking for a role that would pay him more, but to work less than he's currently doing. Now, I'm not saying he should be working 10 hours a day in, in the role but that's for him to get the work done that is expected of him for whatever reason he's having to work 10 hours. But then to have been in a role for five months and then be looking for a 20K pay rise when I'm guessing five months ago you got a pay rise anyway. Like for me, that's just not realistic. And I think that people have to put that to one side that the market's hot and just be like, well, where, where am I positioned in this market? And at what point am I adding value? And at what point am I asking for too much? Because just because other people might be earning that money, like I said, there isn't, a market rate per se, just based because your your job title was the same as someone else's doesn't mean that you necessarily had the same amount of value. So yeah, my, my feeling is a lot of the time that there, there are some some really, you know, out there expectations. And, and I, I don't know what's going to happen when things kind of settle down and more people are in the market. And, and that was actually my, my question to you, because what happens when the borders open and there are more people, what happens to the salaries and, and the people that have been earning more than they would have had we not had the whole border closure and and spike in in opportunities yeah that's an interesting one so i think my immediate reaction to your friend is i i no, don't begrudge you trying to get the next salary rise right but you use the word value a few times i think that's the key right is are you bringing value to the table that's equivalent to the amount of money you're asking for so then you're asking the question well are you doing 10 hours a day because you're just not that skilled there's an expectation that the amount that we're paying you should be able to get this done in eight but you actually don't have the skills and it's taking you 10? Or is it that it's the type of business where the, the culture is that way? Or is it that it's a particular time when there's a like high intensity project? If you're not happy with any one of those things, either you don't have the skills to be able to operate at that level and it's a struggle, then you'd almost be asking, well, then why aren't you either looking for a role in the same money with less expectation or going back to where you're more comfortable that you can get the job done? Yeah. Or... If you want to move to another organization where you don't have to do 10 hours because actually that's an unreasonable expectation in that organization. If you want flexibility, I want to work remotely and I only want to do eight hours a day. And let's say you live an hour or two out of the city and whatnot, and now you get flexibility. Well, you've already picked up largely a salary kick because you get that time back in your day, you get you know, all these other things, right? But to double down and go, if I'm not performing at this role, I'm certainly not going to outperform at the next one. So getting a kick is probably unlikely. If I am performing in this role, but it's just a really high expectation, and I don't want that expectation anymore, to find another role, same salary, better conditions, also a tick. But to double yeah. down, that's, uh, that's an interesting game. And I think where that's going to play out to your second question around what are organisations going to do? So we talked about this again at the most recent roundtable, right? Salaries in particular. I guess the feeling from the room, particularly the CFOs who've been thinking about this for a little while, is that, salaries are rising at the moment 
not expecting them to drop back down. So what they're saying is the salary for a particular role will be what it is and that'll probably hold. Because I specifically asked the question, right? You know, like to your point, when all these people come in flooding in from overseas and there's no longer a buyer's market, is that going to put downward pressure on salaries? And what does that mean for the people getting paid a high salary? And the assumption at this point is the salaries won't go down. They'll stay the way they are. The reason people will travel from overseas to Australia versus anywhere else is because the salaries are quite high. So we'll get an influx of talent because they want to attract that amount of money. They want to send it home. They want to do whatever, right? Where it's going to be interesting is I talked about the bands before. So if you've come in and I've had to put you in at the top of the band and now we're six or 12 months down the track and you're struggling to perform within that band, I've got somebody else in the same band who is outperforming you then there's going to be a real interesting conversation because you can just, you know, they might both be called, say, senior developer. Yeah. Two people with the same title should be getting the same salary. Okay, maybe. But just because you have the same title, you, you know, and again, have you just become a senior developer or are you a senior developer of five years and is there a difference in your ability to deliver and the value you bring to the table? If that's the case and you're both in the same band and you're both delivering exactly the same level of value and you're being paid differently, then I would say you absolutely have to square it up. But if somebody who's in the organization is outperforming you in the same band, and you're getting paid more, then someone's going to start asking questions, right? So what does that mean? Does that mean that we start looking at the team and going, you know what, maybe we don't need as many senior developers? And who knows? Does somebody else get promoted and you get jacked and you bounce anyway? Maybe. But yeah. I think it's going to present an interesting challenge if people get over-promoted and survive probation and just get by. And then all of a sudden, a couple of years down the track, other people in the team are sort of showing them up that, mm-hmm. that could be interesting yeah and i don't want people to watch or listen to this and think oh i shouldn't go to ben because he doesn't want to get me a pay rise like i absolutely do like there's nothing better than, than getting someone the, the money that they deserve in the market and, and the value that they're worth but i also hate to see people set up to fail and mm-hmm. and i have seen examples of that in the market where you know people are just being stretched and i can tell that they're, they're being paid a salary that that is paid to other people that are far greater experience than they are in other companies. And then it's like, well, you know, that that's a recipe for disaster when when the expectation is up here and you're just not going to get there. So so yeah, I think it, it comes back to value. And and I agree. I think when companies can hire and, and broaden their pool of talent and they're looking at more people, then it will be um yeah, it'll be interesting to see well if I can get this person for for this money and I've got this person at the same money, but they're delivering so much less value, then it's going to be a difficult conversation, I guess. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, to echo your point around should people get paid what they're worth? Absolutely, right? So, you know, we talked about this the other day. I think the market salaries are going to be what they are. And if you don't pay the market salary, you're not going to attract or retain people. So you, you almost have to take the dollars off the table in terms of you're just going to have to pay it if you're a business. And so should people be asking for what they're worth? Absolutely. I guess what I'm just saying is similar to you, right? Is don't set yourself up for a hard time or a fail by pushing the boundary too far and then all of a sudden you're in an awkward position then the next one from an organizational perspective comes down to you know flexibility in terms of where you work from and the times you work used to be a differentiator in the market you know there were some organizations that offered it and some didn't and if you were looking for flexibility that's how you would attract talent it's almost at the point now particularly in the tech space where that's your ticket to play if you don't offer that and you start forcing people back into the office they're just going to go so these things Beyond that, then it becomes really interesting, right? It's like, what's the next level? What's attracting people? And I think it's about organizational culture. 
And I think there's a real industry change in what does that mean? Because typically a digital business culture is how you describe it would be, oh, we get together on Fridays and we do beer and pizza and we have this great office space and all these breakout rooms and we whiteboard stuff and you go, that's great. What does that mean in 2022? Yeah, yeah. 50 plus percent of your staff work remotely. How do you attract and retain people? And, you know, it's not necessarily on the topic of salaries, but I think that's what's going to be the transformational change in terms of the trend for 22 in terms of you know businesses and attracting people yeah 100 percent. and the the final question around uh, looking forward and, and predictions like we, we've spoken about permanent and contract and, and fixed term but there's this kind of niche and i guess advisory service similar to, to, to what you do yourself where it's like expert on demand right so you're not employed by any particular company you're self-employed you have your own business but you're not a professional services firm in the sense of a consulting business, but people come to you for advisory services and that can be on a retainer basis. And they, you know, bring you on for expertise for, you know, multiple phases of a program, or it could just be once a month, they have you in to make sure everything's on track. So do you see that as a model that's going to grow over the the coming years? And and also not just in that kind of leadership space, but also going down to the more hands-on kind of Salesforce capabilities. I think there's definitely a growing niche in terms of retainer style experts that have in in that model I described, where you've got people who, you know, are either working with lots of different organizations or are staying with one and then you know, are you a real specialist or a generalist? And if you want to call that kind of a you know, matrix, if you like, that sort of top right-hand corner, I think there's definitely a market for people like myself who are providing deep thought leadership and expertise in something that's specific. So, you know, in my, in my case, it's you know, tech leadership and you know, platform investments. Do I see that extending? I reckon there's a market for roles like, like a program architect or those sorts of roles where you know even in this in the space where you were you know buying one from a salesforce they can kind of ebb and flow in and out of your organization to keep you on track and understand what you're doing and guide but they don't need to be necessarily hands on keyboard day in day out and could probably then straddle half a dozen clients quite comfortably and add value in a lot of places you probably need to build up to that and you probably need to have been doing it for a while and maybe even work for Salesforce for a few years doing that to kind of get that breadth of experience that you could command those sort of dollars and be able to, you know, sell yourself across multiple organizations. Mm-hmm. But retainer style services beyond maybe architecture and that sort of thing, I'm not sure. Because I think where you'll end up is when does it become consulting and when does it become advisory? And if it's a consulting, then you're playing the day rate game, right? You're back in yeah, your- yeah else so you know you could potentially go you know what i'm doing fixed engagements but then you're largely operating as a single person in freelance right so yeah yeah or a freelance consultant so yeah i think the advisory thing is a niche i think there will be more of it but it won't necessarily be i'm the difference between a freelance software developer and a retainer style like an advisor i reckon there's a differentiator between the two yeah, for sure. So um, if anyone's listening and they're like, you know, I really like what Shane said and I actually need an advisory service, where's the best place now to find you and find your content? Mate, I always love a plug. Thank you. So my website's probably the best place to find me, shanewilliams.com.au. You can find me on LinkedIn, but there's a fair few Shane Williams there, but uh, you'll certainly get a hold of me at shanewilliams.com.au. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your insight. Really appreciate it.
Thanks, mate. Always good to chat and uh, look forward to coming back again soon. And let's see what the uh, the borders bring when they open. Indeed. Can't wait to get across them and see uh, our friends over the ditch. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talent Hub Talk. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you could subscribe and also leave a short review. Um, we're keen for this podcast to reach as many people in the Salesforce ecosystem as possible, and your reviews will help us. Do-